All right. I'll call you back, back together. I always hate to end this time. You know, you, uh, you guys seem to like talking to each other, which is a good thing, right? So uh, we're continuing on in our series called Journey of the Soul. I've, I've told you several times, usually during this time of this year, we're working our way through Genesis, but because of COVID, we're actually trying to kind of reconnect with each other a bit. We're doing these community groups after our worship service. We're uh, following kind of um, some texts that lead us to the journey that we're on as believers. We spent we started with Psalm 23 and, and just looked at this whole idea of following the shepherd. That's, that's the role that we are to play. We're to, we're to follow his lead. Uh, Ephesians 2, the next week we talked about how this whole journey is built on this pathway of grace. It has to be about what God has done for us. And that's what in turn brings fruit in our life. It's not the other way around that we earn that grace, but that we get that grace and the fruit flows out of that. Last week we talked about Zacchaeus, nice little short tax collector guy who, who was called by Jesus. And this confidence we have in Christ that he will meet us, that he wants to be with us, uh, and the relationship that flows out of that. Today, we're going to move kind of on the next step, what, what we'll call like help in growing as a disciple. And this week, we're going to look at two small sections of text. And this is hard for me because I like looking at one text and working through it. Um, we're going to look at, at two, uh, both written by Paul, 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. If you're using your Bible, stick your finger in there. And also, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. While you're finding those, they'll be on the screen too. But I, I, I want to just preface this today by, um, I don't know if preachers are full of ego, but we always kind of feel like what we're saying is the most important thing. I'm sorry we're like that. But I think we, God has to give us a sense of conviction or we couldn't get up here and stand in front of you. But, but what I'm talking about today, I really feel like is, is um, I mean, I'm, I'm doing some studies and this is kind of what I'm focused in on. I told my wife, I said, the problem with Sunday sermon is I have 85 hours of material to shrink down into 30 to 35 minutes. So um, I, surely by Tuesday afternoon, we'll be done with this message. But I do, I just want to encourage you to hang on, to, to listen to what we're working through here, because I really think this is a very practical aspect of growing as a disciple that we don't often hear uh, as, as we are disciples. And we need to wrestle with this stuff. So I'll read those two texts. If you have them in your Bible or they'll come up on the screen. First, First Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And then 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So what, what we see in these two texts are two texts about training. 
And you may say, Jeff, you've been talking about grace, grace, grace. All we've heard is grace, and it's not about what we do. And now you're going to tell us this is what we, that's exactly what I'm saying. I wanted to spend three weeks on this underlying foundation of grace because you have to get that before you can train in a way that actually works with the Spirit of God. Just because God's grace is what matters, it's not a passive life that we live. And these two small snippets of text from Paul focus in on this challenging relationship between what God has done for us and what we do as we grow as a disciple. The first in the Timothy passage, it starts by saying, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tale. I think Paul tells us this because stories shape the habits of our lives. The things we believe, the truths that we hold to, the stories that we tell ourselves, these shape our lives more than what we may say we believe or think we believe. It's, it's the stories that we buy into. It's the way we think the world works. And if you believe that success is a good bank account and a respected career, then you're, that's going to shape the decisions that you make in your day-to-day life. If you believe that people have to think well of you, and no matter what, you need a good reputation, you need to be accepted by people, if that's your story, it's going to shape your behavior. Even your story of God, what you think God is like, is going to shape how you, how you hold belief. And Paul says, watch what you believe. Don't listen to these old myths, these these old wives' tales. Even with COVID now, have you noticed there's a number of different stories floating around in the world about what's actually going on, right? And and the story that you choose to hold to is going to shape your belief. It's really important. We're We're going to talk in a few minutes about the story that should shape our belief. But I want you to realize what Paul's saying here is the things that we think and the things we believe actually do give shape. And Paul says, instead of that, you should, what should shape your life is training yourself to be godly. And with that, he points us to what I'll call the dual nature of, of spiritual growth. We've, we've looked at this pathway of grace, our confidence in Christ as we come to him, as we follow him. I've been talking about, it's about what God has done for us, Right? But that doesn't mean we live passively. It doesn't mean that there's no role for us to play, that we don't take an active role in our growth as disciples. Train yourselves to be godly, to act like God would, to live out his character. There's this dual nature that God does and we do at the same time. And that that begins shaping us to be more like Christ. It echoes what he writes in Philippians 2. Uh, Verse 12 and 13, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue, you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his purpose. So you work out what God is working in. That's that dual nature of, of this spiritual journey. We are accepted by God as we are. We've said that over and over. I've said that over and over. You're probably getting tired of hearing it, maybe. But we're accepted by God as we are, but, but that acceptance then allows us to work with the Spirit of God, to work out what God has worked in. That's what it means to train yourself to be godly. And, and we'll talk about it more in a minute. I'm going to give you some specifics about how to train yourself to be godly. But, but first, in 1 Corinthians 9, I want to jump to that passage because in that one you see the importance of our intention. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? You 
Run in such a way to get the prize. Make a decision, a choice, intentionally to move in a way that will increase your Christ-likeness. Everyone who competes in the games, he says, goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We're intentionally acting this way because it's an investment in something that will never fade. The very fact that we're in this race and running means that we want to give it all that we have. And he says, if people train for the games or a race, how much more shouldn't we train for this? Verse 26 of that passage, Therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly, I don't fight like a man beating the air. He says, we have direction. We have purpose. Because of what God has done for us, there are specific things that we want to do out of that. And we we talked several weeks ago about 2 Peter, right? His divine power, we said, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You've heard this, but I really beat it like a drum when we went over it. God has done this for us. He's given us everything we need. And then he says, for this very reason, because of this, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Because God has done this, we want to be intentional about working out what God has put in us. Paul says, I don't, run, I, don't, I don't run aimlessly. I don't fight like a guy just swinging in the air, but I, I make choices. He says, no, I actually beat or I subdue. The, the word there for beat, that sounds kind of weird. I beat my body. He's not talking about just bashing your body. It actually means to wear someone down. A, a good use of this verb would be when your kids are little and they're like, mommy, mommy, mommy. Mommy, mommy, and they're like, what? Right? Or daddy, daddy, daddy. They wear you down to where you finally change or do something. That's that word. I do that to my body. I I, I annoy it until it does what I want it to do. That's what he's saying there. And this is where you start to see the link between the spiritual and the physical. There's a link between that. The body is the vehicle, he says, where this training is going to happen, where this intention happens. This is the place that we need to focus. The spiritual life, we talk about the spiritual life, and sometimes we just think that it's in our mind. There's these concepts we think about God, or we pray quietly in our heart. But our body is all wrapped up in our spiritual life. You cannot separate the two. In Galatians, Paul says, For the sinful nature, or the flesh, desires what's contrary to spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, or the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. There's these tendencies in our body that fight against what we've done, what, we've, what God has done for us. And in Mark 14, you know, in the garden, Jesus says to the sleeping disciples that he's asked to watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. How many can say amen to that? You ever felt that? I really want to. I really do. But it's just sometimes I can't carry out what I want to. And that's because the body and the spirit can't be easily separated. It's one. They're intertwined. And as we move forward in our spiritual training, we have to begin to realize that training our bodies to work with what God has put in our spirit is a huge part of the journey. That's why I want to spend today understanding the whole of who we are. 
in, in the Psalms, the psalmist writes, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And one of the biggest challenges I find in my own life, and I'm, I'm interposing that onto you, the biggest challenges in the spiritual journey is I'm just not aware of actually how all the parts of me and how they work together and my motivations and these underlying subconscious things that I do without even thinking about it. And, and, and we need to see how this tendency towards sin corrupts our actions and leads us the wrong way. I, I came across um, a guy years ago by the name of Dallas Willard, and it intrigued me right away because he was a Baptist pastor, and he was the professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. And, and usually those two wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I, I appreciate the two together, but, but most times you wouldn't think the Baptist pastor is the academic philosopher at the same time. And yet, I started reading some of his stuff, and in, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he, he develops what he calls a model of the soul or a model of the self that has been really helpful for me. And, and it's hard to explain it. I tried to do it concise. I've created a little video uh, kind of illustration to talk it through. So, Glenn, if you can play that. Then... Willard really helped me uh, kind of understand all the bits and pieces of who I was and how those parts all work together. So I want to show you that. He, he starts by saying at the very center of who we are is our heart. Now that's also referred to oftentimes as our will or our spirit. Um, our decisions flow out of this place. It's really where our core identity is. That's, that's the center of who we are. Now surrounding that and another part of who we are is our mind. And our mind consists of both our thoughts uh, and our feelings. That's what happens in our minds, our thoughts and our feelings. But that's still not all of who we are. We have a body, right? And the body is where the action gets carried out. This, these decisions that flow out of our heart uh, that often are prompted by our thoughts and our feelings actually are carried out through our physical body. Now, you may think that's, that's all that we are, but, but Willard also says that a part of us is our relationships, our relationships with God and with other people. And our relationships actually are where who we are becomes visible. It's where you can see uh, all the other stuff that's within our heart in the context of our relationships. And Willard even goes one step further and says this whole package together is our soul. It's the whole of who we are. So we have this, this heart, mind, body, relationships with others, and all of that makes up our soul. Now, there's pretty good biblical backing in this. In fact, um, in Mark 12, 29 to 31, when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he says, the most important one, answer Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, your physical strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater no commandment greater than these. Now, so th this is a, a, a model of the whole self, the different parts of who we are. And where Willard helped me is that he helped me realize that, that apart from Christ, the world lives from the outside in. See, at the center of the self is the heart. This is the place where decisions are made that lead to action. 
And the mind, the thoughts and feelings, it, it pushes the heart to make decisions and to take action in a certain way. Or, or your relationships influence your heart to make decisions, to take action. Or your body has these certain patterns that you've learned throughout your life, and that puts pressure on the heart in regards to the decisions that it makes. So we, when we come to Christ, we have a new heart. We are uh, holy, blameless children of God. Our identity is restored, renewed. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. But we still have this old mind, this old body, this old way of living in relationships with each other, these habits that are ingrained in these other parts of who we are. And we want to obey, but we're fighting against the current. And what Willard says is that as opposed to the world, the disciple is called or formed to live from the inside out. As disciples, we learn to live differently. Our heart and will are transformed. We know that. We have this new identity in Jesus. And then this new identity uh, that we have enables us to begin to work with God to train these other parts of the self, the mind, the relationships, the body, to work with our new identity. It's the power of the Spirit at work in us that comes through grace and our relationship with God. Remember, the, the Scripture says it's this incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead. But it's also our own effort in training these aspects to live differently. As we draw on that power, we train our, our heart, our mind, our body to live differently by the grace of God. And that leads our heart, our true identity, to make decisions and to take actions that flow out of who we are in Christ. From, from this you begin to see the power of the body, the mind, and our relationships as they shape our behavior. Um, they have tremendous power in how our heart makes decisions. It's one of the reasons Paul says in our text that he needs to beat his body and make it his slave because that's the one thing that will push my heart in the wrong direction unless I begin to work with the Spirit of God to train it. Another quote from Dallas Willard, he says, The body must be weaned away from its tendencies to always take control, to run the world, to achieve and produce, and to attain gratification. This is, Paul, Paul talks about this a lot, especially in Romans 6 and 7. In Romans 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. He's saying train these parts of your body that are used to going the other way. Now you've got this power of God that you can draw on and it's in this freedom of being the child of God, that identity, and you can begin to work to train your body to go a different way. And in Romans 7, he says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions arise by the law, aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, where the Spirit's training our body and our mind and our relationships. 
and not in the old way of the written code. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? You've heard this from this body of death. And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying, what I can do now is begin to train my mind, my body, my relationships to work with the Spirit of God. <laughs> I, I was, my mom is visiting. I'm thrilled to have my mom here. Um, she has... She, she taught me the Bible from, I, I think, from the time of conception. I think I learned Bible for the first nine months as she read it every day. But, but one of the funny things that I've noticed and my family has noticed is with my mom here, I drift back into my southern accent. I, I, they've noticed it several times and they've mocked me repeatedly about my drawl coming back. And what, what's funny is I'm not trying to. It's, it's in me. It's a habit that I lived for many years to speak with a southern accent. Now, when I came here, you guys mocked me for saying Pharaoh and hero. And so I changed it, right? I really tried to cultivate. But another example is I'm in a room, and guess what? I'm watching the room, people move around, and I realize I have become my father. I haven't tried to act like my dad. I just do because it's part of me. I sit in a room and just watch. That's what my dad loved to do, what people watch. And I love to do the same thing. These are my body, my mind, and my relationships have been trained for years and years and years. Now, these are good examples. I'm not going to try to change those. But there are negatives to this as well. There are people who, who have a habit of destructive relationships and who just can't shake it. There are people who live selfishly, even when they don't want to, even when they know. How many of you have something that you know you don't want to do? This is spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, but you just can't seem to stop yourself from doing it at times. That's the body, the mind, and your relational patterns pushing against your heart to make decisions that go contrary to who we are in Christ. And it would be overwhelming if it weren't for the good news that the grace and power of God energize our transformation. We talked about that a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 2. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. The deadness of habit and pattern that lives in our body and our mind and our relationships can be resurrected by the Spirit of God. But that's why it's called training. We have to work that pattern out. And it's a lifelong process to surrender the way you think, the way you feel, the way you react, and the way you relate back to the Spirit of God. And something really important, this process takes time. If you're going to run a 5K and you're not in shape today, you better start slow, right? Same with the spiritual journey. You can't just expect tomorrow, oh, I know now the parts of the soul. Jeff showed me that video. I know, so I'm just going to be totally trained. No, it's, it starts slow. It takes time. I found a quote by a, a trauma specialist, Risma Menachem, and I love this. In today's America or Canada... We tend to think of healing as something binary. Either we're broken or we're healed from that brokenness. But that's not how healing operates, and it's almost never how human growth works. More often, healing and growth take place on a continuum with innumerable points between utter brokenness and total health. And that's the way it is in the spiritual life. Our healing takes time. Our, our transformation into Christ-likeness takes time. You, don't, you didn't get to where you were quickly. I didn't learn my southern accent quickly. 
I didn't learn to be like my father quickly. It took time and years and, and watching. And same, same with our undoing of our, of our sin. When Jesus tells the parable of the, the seeds on the soil, he says the seed in Luke 8, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. It takes time. But the, the beauty is the grace of God gives us that time. Right? Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will make it happen over time. So I want to wrap up today with, with a practice plan for discipleship. And I'm going to switch a passage. I'm going to go to Colossians 3 and work my way through a, a section in Colossians 3 as we wrap up this application but I, I want you to see what I'm trying to do here. Before every, I'm a basketball coach. Some of you may not know that. Maybe one or two who are here for the first time. But before every practice, I sit down and I develop a plan because I want to make, and most of the season, I have it planned out because I want us to work on things in an order. I want us to be smart about how we do it. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do with these last four kind of, we'll call them application points, this is a practice plan for the spiritual life. There are several things that we can do to help us. And they follow pretty closely, I'm amazed, from Colossians chapter 3. So, so I'm going to read it to you section by section as we go through these points. But the first thing you have to do if you want to train yourself to live surrendered to Jesus is you have to live grounded in the gospel story. Let me just read these first four verses. Chapter 3 from Colossians. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Since then, we have been raised with Christ. That's a whole different story. We're already new, he says. So set your minds on things above. This is what's true of you, he says. This is a life grounded in the gospel story. It doesn't matter how you fail this afternoon. The gospel's big enough to take it, to put grace on it, and to help you transform it. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, he said, then you, the real you, is going to appear with him in glory. It's not dependent on your success or ability. It doesn't change by your doubts. It doesn't change with your feelings. And if you're going to train yourself to be godly, you have to start with the gospel as the ground of your identity. Because if you don't, the training will just become things you're doing to puff up your ego and feel spiritual. You first have to know the gospel story. And our stories shape our actions. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, but ground yourself in the gospel story. If that's not your starting point, like I say, it's just going to be about building your ego. So, so start by living grounded in the gospel. And then, then do another thing. I've talked about this here often at the church, very often in Sunday school. I call it do off-the-spot training. Now, this is another thing I've stolen from Dallas Willard. The fact is that in the challenging moments when, when we're tempted to sin, it's very hard to change our habits in that moment, right? And so one of the things we need to do is start training our habits off the spot, training our habits when it's easy. So that when the pressure is on, our habits will have shifted a bit. It looks like this. If I struggle with gossip and talking about other people, one of the things I'm going to do 
instead of waiting for the moment to come up when somebody wants to know a juicy piece of gossip that I got, I'm going to practice in conversations shutting up. I'm going to practice saying nothing in a group for a while and just get my body used to not saying anything in a conversation with a group of people. And that way I start training it. Maybe, maybe if I'm controlling and selfish, that's the thing I struggle with. Then what I'm going to do, off the spot, when it's easy, I'm going to choose to, to lose in some decisions. People want to go to dinner, I'm going to let them pick, and I'm not going to pick the place I'm going to go. People want to plan a Saturday afternoon, I'm going to let them plan it, and I'm not, because it really doesn't matter, right? I can let it go there, and I, be, I begin training my body off the spot to work with, so when the moment comes and I feel this desire to be controlling, I've already practiced not controlling things. If I struggle with lust, and I, 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 you know, I, I can't control the way I feel when I see something, I, I might practice fasting for a day a week, because what I do in fasting is I teach my body, you don't have to respond to every time you're hungry. You can put it off. You will not die. And so then when, when the moment of lust comes, I've, I've began to train my body not to respond to every desire that I have. If money's important to me, I might practice generosity. Just start giving some away over here when it's easy so that when the crunch comes, I've, I've loosened money's hold on me. This, this table we come to today, you know what this is? This is off-the-spot training. Because after church, most of us, most of us feel pretty good. We feel pretty much like we love God. Yes, we've, we've heard he loves us. And so we come. But you know what we do? We, when, we come when it's easy to say, I need your body. I need your blood. Because Tuesday afternoon when we've blown it, we feel like we can't even face God. We need to know that we can take that body and blood at that same time. It's off the spot training. That's what Paul writes about in this next section of Colossians, starting with verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, these old habits in the life you once used to live, but now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And there's a lot here. You don't have to work on all this today. Find one thing that you're really struggling with and and think, how could I train? What is it that I'm trying to do there? What do I need to let go? How could I train in an easy way? I've thought about this for years, so if you come talk to me, and I'll try to help you develop a a nice practice that you could do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday that might actually help your habits change. You might just be surprised at how God's power works when you do small little things off the spot. The third thing in the coaching practice plan, prioritize intention and community. Prioritize intention. Take some action. Don't let this be a concept. Think about in your own life, what is it that I'm going to do? Paul says, I don't want to run aimlessly. I don't want to fight like a man beating the air. I'm going to do something specific. So ground yourself in the gospel, right? And, and, and develop a plan to do some off-the-spot training. And you know what? When that plan falls apart, guess what? You're grounded in the gospel. You blew it. Okay, go back, start over, because we, we're grounded in the grace of God. That's what he's talking about in the next section of text, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, 
And he says, do something. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Use intention and realize that that, that happens in community. Very often, what I find with this off-the-spot training is if I have somebody else walking through it with me, it helps. So prioritize intention, prioritize community, and finally, give grace and time to yourself and to others. Look at the last section of the text. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You've got you to see this is, this is a process. Give grace to yourself and give grace to others. We didn't train our body, mind, and relational habits to be the way they are overnight, and it's not going to untrain to go the opposite direction overnight. But grace is the safe place for that to happen. Years ago, I found a, uh, a little thing written by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit guy. It's called Patient Trust. And it impacted me so deeply, I printed it up on little cards. I put them out there by the door on the way out. If you want to take one, please take one. But I just, I just want to read this, and then we'll close and move into communion. I know I've gone a little long. I appreciate your patience with me. I'm, I'm letting you off the spot practice patience. <laughs> just listen to what Chardin wrote. Patient trust, it's called. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown and something new. And yet it is a law of progress that it's made by passing through some stages of instability and it it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstance acting on your own goodwill, may make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. I love this last line. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. I I love that. We ground our lives in the gospel because the stories that we choose for our life will shape our behaviors. We reflect on the areas that we struggle in. Okay, what is it? And we try to find a way to practice a discipline or something that will help me when it's easy to change my character, to work with the Spirit of God, because he's on my side. He wants that to change. And we do it intentionally. We do it in community. And then we give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading us and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. It's a a long journey, right? It starts with this table and it continues day after day after day. And the day-to-day journey is always surprising, but the destination is assured. We know that one day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Yeah, there's a lot of lot that we've thrown out today, and we just, we do want to work with you 
in our transformation. We, we thank you for the grace that accepts us as we are. But we also want to live whole and full lives. We want to live lives that reflect you to the world. And so help us to, to take this in, to start thinking about ways that we can work with you to train ourselves to be godly so that we can, can bring our body and our mind and our relationships into our own control so that they, they react from our identity in you and not from the habit patterns that we've made all throughout our life. We commit this to you, God, and ask that today at the table we could nourish ourselves on you because that is the one thing that empowers us to change. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm on here. Philippians 1.6 says, um, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on till the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish this work. And it started here at this table where he said, take, I've got what you need. You need to take it. And one day we'll be sitting around a table at the wedding feast of the Lamb and all things will be made to you. And that, that's the beauty of, of what we're doing. We're training to live now so that more and more people will come to that wedding feast. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.